First off, let me say thank you for all your kindness to our family over the past couple of weeks. We have felt very supported and loved by you. Um, Katie asked me to give you her thanks. I know that you've been mostly concerned about me, but you should know that Katie and Evangeline are also doing well. Um, We've had the help of moms over the past couple of weeks, which we're so grateful for. Um, but we'll soon be moving from that man-to-man to, um, what is it called? The zone defense that so many of you have told me about. So, yeah, we're about to transition, and I don't know how if we're excited about that at all. Um, also, I, I'm really grateful to Drew and Keith for being such team players over the last couple of weeks. Um, this type of situation, and by situation I mean when your pastor and your wife goes into labor on Easter... Um, this kind of situation reminds you how important it is that you're connected with a group of churches um, who are generous in their support and their care for each other. Um, and I know that you're grateful, like me, that the pastors are around us are so gifted and, and so generous with their gifts. These are blessings to us from God, and we should certainly give thanks for them. Now, this is our second week, or your second week at least, in a series on the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. So I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, if you'll open it or scroll there to 1 Peter. And while you're doing that, I want to encourage you. uh, We're going to be in the letter over the next four weeks for the rest of the season of Easter. And as we walk through it on Sundays, I also want to ask you to take time to read this letter during the week. Uh, And here's one way I really hope you'll do this. Take time once a week to read the whole letter in one sitting. This is going to take you about 15 to 20 minutes. Even if you don't read quickly, this will only take you about 15 to 20 minutes to sit down and read the letter all the way through. And it's going to get better every time you do it. Also, if you can, do this out loud. So Travis sits right beside me, right on the other side of where I sit when I'm reading out loud. And I have to go warn him, I'm not talking to myself right now. I might be talking to myself other times. Right now, I'm not talking to myself. And you might have to do that with some folks um, if if you are willing to take this risk. There's something to the fact that New Testament letters like 1 Peter were meant to be read aloud, to be heard and read in their entirety. All at once. They were delivered to a people and they were asked to be read aloud to a congregation. And doing this allows us to catch more of the feel, the overall tone of the letter, and the overarching themes. I find personally that I end up hearing things, catching things that I wouldn't catch if I were bogged down in maybe one or two words at a time, or even if I'm reading silently and just kind of breezing through, just catching the words with my eyes. Instead, when I'm saying them aloud, it's as if they, they're coming out and they're going into my ear and I'm hearing them again. Um, it's sort of, to me, like going up on Skyline Drive so, and looking out on the, the vistas of the valley. We live here, so we know it's beautiful. But when we go up on Skyline Drive, we catch the graceful and just expansive beauty of this place that we live. And we see it in another light. We need this kind of encounter with Scripture too. So please, try this out over the next four weeks. Give it a shot. 
try taking one once a week to just read the letter in in one sitting. Now, you may remember from last week that the beginning of this letter is all about Peter singing the praises of God for his work of salvation through Jesus. Listen to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, I I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, um, and I had the privilege, living in Louisiana, to hear lots of good Southern African American preachers. And when they preach, they create this kind of rhythm in their preaching. I mean, it's exciting to listen to. And I say this because Peter writes the way they preach. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. These are staccato machine gun fire adjectives that in the Greek, they all start and end with the same letter. What Peter's doing is creating a rhythm to the story of God's salvation. God's salvation is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is the nature of His promises for you. Now, after verse 3, Peter goes on for another five verses without even taking a breath. So verses 3 through 9 are really all one sentence in the Greek. If you are really concerned about grammar, you would not like Peter's writing right here. Why does that matter? Because Peter is in awe of the work of God, and he wants us to be in awe of it too. God raised Jesus from the dead. Then He raised us from our own spiritual death. And He's given us new life. He's given us a new hope. This is about you and me. What God has done in us. He's made us His own sons and daughters. And He's assured us that as our Father, He will see us through any trial that we encounter. No matter how difficult. I'm convinced Peter wants to inspire and rally us by drawing us in to reflect on everything God has done. So he wraps up his section here by subtly encouraging us. Though you don't now see Jesus, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You hear this, and even if you don't feel it, You want to. Who wouldn't want to feel a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory? This is what humans were made for. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that in our passage today, Peter gives us another way of thinking about God's salvation, another reason for praising God. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, You were ransomed. By God. You were ransomed. Now, ransomed is one of those big, powerful words the Bible uses to describe what God has done for us. But what does it mean? In general, it means to be purchased back, right? To be paid off. So there was this debate a couple of years ago as to whether the U.S. had paid a $400 million ransom to Iran for American prisoners. And just earlier this year, 
uh, a hospital had some files, patient files, stolen by hackers, and the hackers demanded that the hospital pay a $55,000 ransom so that the files, the patient's files, were returned to them and not tampered with in any way. And the hospital paid the ransom, and they received their files back unharmed, untouched. Now, the Bible uses the word ransom in a similar way, but it often does have to do with people. So it it was usually used in a slave system in the ancient world. If a slave could put together enough money in the ancient world, he or she could go to a local temple, they could deposit the money at the temple, and then someone from the temple would give some of that money to the slave's owner. Now, the, the belief about what's happening in this, transition, this transaction is that the, the slave could be freed by the owner, but the slave now belongs to the God of that local temple where the money was paid. But still, what does this have to do with us? How are we ransomed? I want us to look at three questions that Peter answers in this passage. First, we're going to ask, what have we been ransomed from? Who who owned us? Second, how were we ransomed? And then third, we'll ask the question, what were we ransomed for? So first, what have we been ransomed from? I'm going to give you what I think is the answer, and then I'm going to try to prove it and convince you that this is the answer. Peter essentially says we were ransomed, bought back from a life that was less than human. We were bought back from a life that was less than human. So the Bible from the very start presents humans as created in God's image and made to flourish in relationship to God. But it also says that humans often choose to follow their own desires. And when humans do this, it leads us and the world into chaos. It just does not work. This is what the entire book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, intends to show, that human rebellion has led the world into chaos, but God intends to redeem human beings and lead us back into this way of flourishing through a relationship with Him. Notice what Peter says in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 1, and I hope you'll follow along. As obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So the word Peter uses for the word passions here is the same word for desires, just human desires. And in the way that we today might talk about our own flaws or our weaknesses, like we're given to anger, we're given to pride, we're given to fear, whatever it may be that we talk about in ourselves, the ancient world called these passions. And I think they were onto something here. Because by labeling them passions, they saw that these things can have a life of their own. They can be powerful on their own. They can take hold of us and lead us to do things we wouldn't normally do. Think about this. Have you ever felt acted on by anger? There was a situation in which your anger began to rise so much that it it was as if you could not control it. All you did was respond. And later, you thought, 
why did I do that? Why? And it can be the same way with lust, with fear, with a number of things. There's something that wells up in you to the point that you don't have control over it. All you do is respond. This is what Peter is getting at with passions. And he's saying that this way of living in which we follow our passions, our own uncontrolled desires, it's actually degrading to us. It makes us less than human, less than what God made us to be. And this is exactly what he says Jesus has ransomed us from. Jesus has given us the capacity to say no to our passions. Not to be overcome by anger anymore. Not to be overcome by our fears, our pride, or our lusts. Jesus has given us the capacity to be human. So Peter says this in another way in verse 18, if you'd like to look there. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you were redeemed from a life that was pointless. The word for futile here has the sense of untrue, powerless, or useless. Your life at that time was untrue to what it means to be human. It was a powerless and useless life. And he's saying that any life not shaped supremely by Jesus, which these forefathers obviously were not shaped by Jesus, that type of life is a distorted and wasted life, a less than truly human life. Now, all of us have inherited a way of life. We, we cannot deny this. No matter how much we'd like to think differently, much of our lives are shaped not by our own intentional decisions, but by habits. Ways of life that are passed on to us from the time that we're very young. So the furniture of our lives might look different as we get older and we can make our own decisions. But even though the furniture looks different, our lives can still be very similar to our parents, our grandparents, and all of those who pass down these ways to us. Now, some of us have had really good examples, parents or others who have taught us what it means to live a life that is shaped by the way of Jesus. Others of us haven't. Um, others of us have parts of our upbringing that haunt us. Remembering the lashing out of a father or a mother remembering a sense of just disapproval in our home. But the truth is that none of us have had a perfect example of what it means to live a truly human life. None of us have. And this means that all of us, to some degree, have inherited ways of living that are pointless, futile, untrue to what it means to be human. And this is part of the good news of Easter. Jesus has ransomed us from such a life. Jesus has ransomed us from any futile ways that we've inherited. Even if it's uh, our family, it was not a lot of ways that, that were futile. Whatever those ways were, Jesus has ransomed us from all of them. He's redeemed us from a less than truly human life. So none of us are merely victims forced to live the same narrative as our family before us, Jesus has given all of us another way. 
Now, before we get to the other way, we need to look at a different question. We first answered, what have we been ransomed from? We've been ransomed from a way of life that's not truly human, that is untrue to what it means to be a human being as God created us. But how has Jesus done this? How has Jesus ransomed us? Again, I'm going to give you the answer first. Jesus lived the truly human life. This is how Jesus has done it. He has lived the truly human life. Now, back to the examples from earlier about ransoms. Most ransoms involve money, right? The U.S., whether they did or didn't, $400 million. This hospital, 55000 to a hacker company. This is why Peter says, you were ransomed not by silver or gold, but something that's even more precious. That is the precious blood of Christ. Here's what we need to be careful of. Sometimes when we talk about the ways that God has satisfied our sin, forgiven us of our sin, when we talk about things uh, called atonement, this is the theological word, we, we really get into, we, we talk a lot about blood. As if, in a way, and Christianity has been accused of this, as if God were bloodthirsty. But when Peter speaks of Jesus' blood, he isn't simply talking of his death. In fact, it's not really about his blood necessarily. Especially in the ancient world, when you spoke of an animal or a person's blood, you were speaking about their very life. So remember the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis? Cain is angry with his brother Abel because God has approved Abel's sacrifice, but he has not approved his. Cain, in anger and in pride, lashes out in his passions and he kills his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and what does he say? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What is God saying? His blood was his life. His life was crying out from the ground for justice. Now, this is also why the Israelites weren't allowed to eat meat with blood in it. Because in some way, the life was still present there in the blood, and they were to learn to treat life as precious. So when Peter here speaks of Jesus' blood, he's not only speaking about Jesus' death, He's also speaking of his life. The point of the cross isn't merely that Jesus died. Even more than that, the point is that Jesus lived an entirely innocent life. He was the true human being we are made to be. Jesus is the image of God the Father that God intended us to be. And just like Adam and every one of us, Jesus was tempted to follow other desires. He was tempted to follow passions like all humans are tempted to follow. He was tempted to resist pain and suffering and follow a life of immediate pleasure, but Jesus did not. The point of the cross is that Jesus lived the life all of us are called to live, but he died the death all of us deserve to die. And in so doing, 
Jesus conquered the power of sin and he conquered the power of death. By becoming the true human, by dying at the hands of evil and letting evil do its very worst to him, Jesus crushed evil and he ransomed us. He bought us. He bought us back from the evil subhuman passions we perpetually give ourselves over to. So think about your own passions. Is yours anger? Is that how you manifest passion and evil in your life and sin? Or is your passion lust? Do you allow lust to well up and to take control of you? Or is yours fear? Do you constantly make decisions in your life based in fear rather than in courage and in faith? Jesus has conquered these things. He willingly died at the hands of the world's anger so that you don't have to be angry anymore. All the anger in the world was poured out on the innocent one, Jesus. Or if your struggle is fear, Jesus lived a life of courage. And he died because the world was afraid of him. Because it didn't know what to do with him. He rose and he conquers the fears of those who will come to him in faith and trust him. So Jesus has ransomed us by his own life and his death. He's bought us with his own precious blood. He became the true human for us. But why has he done this? Why did Jesus die to ransom us? Now, this is one of the reasons Peter is so elated. You hear that coming? You hear that train coming? Just so you know, I have heard, I think, four trains this morning in the last couple of hours um, before we got here. I'm just going to take a moment, gather ourselves, and wait for this. the first time I've noticed it going that way, right? Anyway. What were we ransomed for? God loved us enough to buy us back so that we might learn to be holy like Him. In other words, God ransomed us so that we could learn to be human the way He's made us to be. He's bought us so that we can reflect His own image into the world. Do you know these normal caricatures of the Old Testament versus the New Testament, that the Old Testament is filled with law and yet the New Testament is filled with uh, grace? Do you know these concepts? Or that the, in the Old Testament, the God is like a moral monster, but in the New Testament, it's Jesus, and He's kind, and He's generous and loving. You know that you're familiar with these contrasts, right? And, and I hope you know those aren't at all true. This doesn't work. In fact, pound for pound, the New Testament has more commandments than the Old Testament does. There are three commands just in our short passage today. 
Now, here's what I think the reason is for more commands in the New Testament than in the Old. Because God's made it so that we can obey Him. This is why. Because He knows. He's worked in us through the life of Jesus. He's ransomed us by His own life and death, conquering the power of sin and death in us so that we can really obey Him. And so He gives us commands. Now, obedience, of course, is learned over time. And there is grace in the process of learning it, of messing up like a child does, but of getting back up and trying again. There is grace in this, but we should always be learning it. Also, the God of the New Testament still judges people. So listen to verse 17 in our passage. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So judgment is a tricky issue in the Bible because on the one hand, God has said, if you believe in Jesus, that will be counted to you as righteousness. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you don't have to fear God's judgment. He will be merciful toward you. At the same time, we have passages like this one all over the New Testament. One in Matthew 25. In James, it's talked about in this other way. They very clearly say God judges based on our actions. What do we do with these? I think the tendency has been to listen to the passages that talk about God's forgiveness and just having faith and God granting us grace. And then the rest of these, we just kind of whisper them sometimes or we just edit them out. We, we become a little bit like Thomas Jefferson who would mark out the miracles in the Bible because he didn't believe they were possible. We, we function in that way with the Bible in that we silence the passages that we don't understand or we don't enjoy very much. But there's a better way. Both of these things are true. Through Jesus, God forgives our sins and He makes us His children. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't. But God expects His children to act like His children. I expect my children to resemble me in some way. At least I hope they do. And of course, none of us are going to quickly disown our children and neither will God. He will not. But if a child has no desire to live as his child, God will judge them. God will give us the fruit of our own decisions. So our knowledge of God as our Father shouldn't dispel our fear of Him as our judge. This is very important. And even though we can now call God Father, we must not let our familiarity with God degrade His holiness, for God is just, and His judgment will be just. So let me ask you, are you living as if God is your Father? As if you really are God's child, capable of loving Him, and obeying Him. God has ransomed you. He has made you free so that you don't have to live that subhuman life anymore, so that you don't have to lash out in anger and rage, so that you don't have to succumb to your, your lusts and your fears. 
So are you living a truly human life? Or are you still living under those old ways, those old passions? You do not have to. Jesus bought us back so that we can experience that joy inexpressible that Peter talks about earlier, filled with glory, so that we can be hopeful even while there may appear to be little reason when we look out into the world for such an ecstatic hope. How can anyone have joy inexpressible that's filled with glory in this world? A writer named G.K. Chesterton, and I'll tell this story to conclude. Uh, He was writing over a hundred years ago in a book called Orthodoxy. And he talked about the difference between Buddhist art and Christian art, especially the distinction between Buddhist depictions of their monks and Christian depictions of saints. And he said the difference he always noticed between these was this. The Buddhist saint always has his eyes shut. Listen carefully. The Buddhist saint always has his eyes shut, while the Christian saint always has them very wide open. The Buddhist saint has a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are heavy and sealed with sleep. The Christian saint's body is wasted to its crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive. The Buddhist is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. The Christian is staring with a frantic intentness outwards. This picture that Chesterton draws of the Christian saint is what it means to be human in the way of Jesus. We don't close our eyes to the world no matter how dark the world becomes. We look out on the world with our heart, our mind, and our hope set on Jesus. Because Jesus looked out on this same world, it was even more evil toward Him than it has been toward us. He looked out on the same world And he gave himself for it. He rose from the dead. And then he raised us. And he's made us his brothers and sisters. Children of his father. Co-laborers in his work of redemption. He's ransomed us. He's ransomed, ransomed us from a life that is less than human. By his own precious blood so that we might live a truly holy human life reflecting the image of our Father. Now, I didn't get to say this with you on Easter Sunday, so I'm going to say it again, say it today, and I'm asking you to do me the favor of responding. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.